It's one of those rare occurrences, ladies and gentlemen, where we have evidence that it actually pays to invest in precious metals. And I don't know about your portfolio, but what I've seen throughout this year is gold, by virtue of keeping its price and now rising, it is rising the ranks through the portfolio. And you're probably seeing the same thing. Silver is up like 25%. It was at around $18.60 not that long ago. Let's just take a quick look here. On our metal prices, four weeks ago it was $18.88. And the week before that it was $18.74. And now it is at $21.90. That is pretty good. And gold is at $1,779.50. So welcome one and all to the Northern Miner podcast where we follow precious metals as well as everything else. And I tell you, we've been following this Canada-China story. It's very ominous, isn't it? I mean, I would put this move that Canada made asking Chinese interests, shall we say, to divest itself of Canadian mining projects with critical minerals. I would put that only second to this whole semiconductor chip thing. And it's kind of right in line with what we could call, for lack of better term, because this probably isn't the right term, but fairly aggressive moves. Let's call them fairly unusual in the context of the last 30 years, longer. Like, I mean, we haven't seen these kind of moves. So first there is the U.S. really clamping down on availability of semiconductors for China. And now we have Canada really dropping the gauntlet here in the last three weeks on Chinese investment in critical minerals assets. So it's getting real. And now we have a development here, this story that came out of CBC on November 13th, so two days ago on Sunday, saying U.S. military weighs funding mining projects in Canada amid rivalry with China. So you almost wonder if somehow, somewhere, this was almost decided ahead of time. And here's the story, again, CBC News, Alexander Panetta, and it says United States military has been quietly soliciting applications for Canadian mining projects that want American public funding through a major national security initiative. Again, it it's kind of weird for a lot of us who have been, as many people will know, who have been listening to this show, I mean, we've been kind of pounding the table here. Again, like I I think of my dad in like, you know, 2005, I think he was talking about Inco being sold off. You know, like, it's just kind of like, I guess, 18 years later, it's become uh, important. And this is what it says. It's part of an increasingly urgent priority of the U.S. government, lessening dependence on China for critical minerals that are vital in everything from civilian goods, such as electronics, cars, and batteries, to weapons. It illustrates how Canadian mining is becoming the nexus of a colossal geopolitical struggle. What have we been saying here on this program? That this whole idea of Canada being kind of a quote-unquote middle power really is underselling the potential of Canada. Because, again, just like you can't fake good writing— You cannot fake having natural resources. You actually need to have them. To be a good writer, you actually have to be able to write. You cannot fake it. And you cannot fake having natural resources. We've been pounding the table, you know, 
and they've been sold off for next to nothing for two decades. Well, as I said last week, better late than never. So let's continue here. Ottawa just pushed Chinese state companies out of the sector, and the U.S. is now considering moving public funding in. That's interesting, isn't it? Public funding. The American military has a new pot of money at its disposal to help private companies inaugurate new mining projects. It's for funding feasibility studies, plant renovations, battery recycling, and worker training. I feel like I could have been advising the U.S. government a year ago, and they might have been ahead on their plans. But continuing on, President Joe Biden invoked the 1950 Defense Production Act to expand the domestic mining sector, and the military received hundreds of millions of dollars to implement it. The whirlwind of activity was prompted by a White House study last year warning that dependence on certain foreign-made products represent a national security risk to the U.S., and it cited semiconductors, batteries, medicines, and 53 types of minerals. And this is the thing. So as the U.S. weans itself off of Chinese manufacturing, there is going to be a bit of a gap, I suspect, between, say, medicines, which I'd say is one of the most powerful cards that China wields over the West right now, the supply of medicines, there's going to be a gap in time between deciding we need these things and when they happen. So strategically, from a Chinese perspective, you know, we've seen Xi out there in military fatigues. Frankly, if I'm China, I'm actually thinking I have a better shot now than in three or four years. Because once these supply chains are reorganized, recreated, then what leverage does China have? But right now, I mean, the West is still, you know, like, I mean, if they have rare earths and they have medicines, they have quite a bit of leverage there. And so it goes, you know, just to finalize this little spiel here, the scary thing of all this is, I think it was Luke Groman, actually, uh, maybe a week or two ago, he was saying, you know, the scary thing, he was mentioning this Canadian mining clampdown and of Chinese investment. And what he said, which resonated, uh, again, kind of scarily, you know, on a deeper level, you could see this as preparations for war. So hopefully that doesn't happen. But uh, again, you see just the, as I say, practically every episode here, just the central role that these minerals that we discuss on this program play in our geopolitical present and future. Now, we have a wonderful interview with Andre St. Germain. It was part of the Mining Legend Speakers series, and, and we don't have enough women on this program as far as I'm concerned. So I thought it was a nice opportunity to put on Integra Resources CFO Andre St. Germain on really her rise as from an investment banker to now a CFO of a pretty serious mining company and everything that came with it. And I think one of the big takeaways for me, which resonated as well, not that I would know, but theoretically, is this idea that women need their own kind of mentorship. And I thought that was simple yet profound, because doesn't it just ring true? Doesn't that just make sense? And so there is something for us to ponder. And there is a lot more, and there's actually some pretty funny moments, such as advice 
from a mining exec, do not spend your bonus on mining stocks. And I think we've all been there uh, one way or another having to learn that lesson. Hopefully things are a little better in the last week, though. So with that, one more thing. We are only two weeks away from the Canadian Mining Symposium. So that is a mega event. And if you want to learn more, you can go to events.northernminer.com and you can apply for an investor pass. And that includes Sean Boyd, Phil Baker, Ira Thomas, and Nadine Miller. I will be doing a couple, two or three interviews there. So it should be a lot of fun, actually. So if you are going, do say hi. I'd love to hear from people that listen to the podcast. It's always fun. And that's what we do here. We have fun. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Instagram at the Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a story from Bloomberg News via mining.com. China has links to dozens of Canadian miners tied to critical minerals. So this is fascinating because it goes into depth. This is a very interesting article. Again, on mining.com, China has built up stakes in more than two dozen Canadian mining companies, including some of the industry's biggest names. So we're getting details on this. Canada's latest crackdown on foreign investments in critical minerals is about to put a chill on such activity and this is fascinating. At least 27 public companies, including tech resources. And this is the one that was in my mind. Ivanhoe Mines. Does that include Ivanhoe? Apparently, Ivanhoe Mines and First Quantum Minerals have shareholders with ties to China, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. Attracting such investors or encouraging them to increase their holdings will now be much harder given Canada's latest efforts to protect its mineral wealth. So how far now does this extend? So they have a list here of companies and the top shareholders with China ties. And the company at the top is Nickel North Exploration, which has 49.7% from Sinotech Hong Kong, but really Ivanhoe Mines, and it is second, and the top shareholder ties are Zijin Mining and the Citic Metal Africa Company, and that is 39.5%. First Quantum Minerals, and Zhangxi Copper has an 18% share in that. Fission Uranium and CGN Mining has a 14% share. And Tech Resources, where China Investment Corporation has a 10% share held in the company. And Lithium Americas, where GFL Lithium has 11%. So that data is compiled by Bloomberg from company disclosures. So continuing with the article, and we have a quote from Subrata Batakarji, who specializes in foreign investment law at Borden Ladner Gervais, what looks like a legal firm, quote, Canada has said it doesn't want to see injections of capital from state-influenced investors. That's going to leave some mining companies in a bind in terms of finding alternate sources of financing. Well, I guess that does not include the U.S. then. Because we just saw a story from CBC saying how the U.S. military, using public funding, wants to invest in Canadian mining companies. And now, I don't know if this is accurate. I mean, is, is that what they said? They don't want state-influenced investors? And then they turn around and say, okay, U.S. military, give us your public funding? Not sure how that works. Chinese firms have been involved in 89 announced acquisitions and investments. 
in Canadian metals and mining companies in the past decade, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. The value of those transactions is $14 billion. It's not that much money in the context of these trillion-dollar budgets, is it? Many deals involve companies tied to the 31 critical minerals identified by Canada. Metals such as lithium, copper, nickel, and cobalt are essential ingredients for electric vehicle batteries, solar panels, and wind turbines. And securing access is key in reducing risks of supply bottlenecks and shortages. Canada has been working with the U.S. and other friendly nations, keyword friendly nations, to develop supply chains for these minerals and reduce dependence on China, which dominates the industry and has stakes in resource firms far and wide. So it's going to be very interesting. I mean, have we seen the Chinese really react to the chip move by the states, the semiconductors, the withholding of semiconductors to the Chinese government. I haven't seen like a clear response from the Chinese government. And it'll be interesting to see like how they deal with this. Like, again, I think Ivanhoe Mines, I mean, it's in the middle of the Congo there, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, and how is that all going to work? So very interesting. You can read the whole story on mining.com. Another huge story with geopolitical implications. LME decides against ban on Russian metal. This is Bloomberg News also via mining.com. So let's see why. Sounds like it would have been a very inflationary thing to do from over here at the Northern Miner Podcast. The London Metal Exchange decided against a ban on new deliveries of Russian metal in a blow to big Western aluminum producers and some traders who had lobbied the exchange to take action. The LME said that feedback from the metals industry showed that a material portion of the market is still accepting, even relying on Russian metal. That's the reality, isn't it? Again, you can't fake having natural resources. In our world of simulation and story and narrative is everything, you know, natural resources, as the, you know, head of commodities at Goldman Sachs, Jeffrey Curry says, the revenge of the old economy, I almost want to call it the revenge of the real economy. So continuing on, it said it did not condone Russia's actions, the LME, but that, quote, the LME should not seek to take or impose any moral judgments on the broader market, end quote. So this is kind of, in my opinion, how things basically used to be Generally speaking, that's why this whole, like when the U.S., you know, seized all of Russia's assets that were abroad, that was crossing a line of sorts. Whatever the morality of the move is, it basically made the U.S. dollar a non-neutral asset, right? And which could hurt it, as many people have pointed out. So if you start doing that with everything, like in a sense, there's just kind of a self-interest here of not getting this intertwined, right? Because it could really backfire in an epic way. The exchange launched a formal discussion a month ago in response to calls from Alcoa Corp and other large suppliers for Russian metal to be excluded from the LME as a growing number of users shunned it in their contracts. So here's Alcoa's response, which I thought, you know, to editorialize was completely inappropriate what they were asking for to basically just get rid of a competitor who supplies a substantial portion of the world's aluminum, which is in basically everything. So let's see what Alcoa had to say. Alcoa, the biggest U.S. producer, is, quote, extremely disappointed in the LME's decision to simply maintain the status quo, 
We continue to believe that there is a significant risk that unwanted Russian origin metal will flood into the LME warehouse system, threatening the reliability of the LME aluminum contract. Well, isn't this exactly what we want if we want inflation to go down, is an oversupply of commodities like metals and oil? So I'm not sure what they're so scared about here. Are they worried that they're going to go out of business? Like, again, we we're discussing like a week or two ago that maybe from the European perspective, this made a little more sense. They are literally shutting down. Okay. They cannot afford, even after energy prices came down significantly, they still cannot afford to compete with three times the regular energy price and make aluminum, sometimes called, as Javier Blas said in his book, The World for Sale, congealed electricity. Okay, you can't sell congealed electricity, aka aluminum, you know, competing with global players, especially in Russia, with lower energy prices. So from a European perspective, I understand it a little more. They're being put out of business. But from the U.S. perspective, I mean, it's still not clear from this quote as to the reasoning. Is it for moral reasons or is it for business reasons? It's not clear. They're not saying anything about the morality. They're just saying this threatens the reliability of the LME. Okay, continuing on. While the majority of global metal is sold and used without ever being delivered to an LME warehouse, a potential ban could still have far-reaching implications for the physical metals industry. And finally here, of the 42 written responses the LME received, less than a quarter were from metal consumers, with traders, bank, and producers representing the largest groups... Of those who endorsed an option, 22 recommended taking no action, while 17 recommended banning Russian metal. Interesting. So a strong enough pushback where the LME just said, let's stay neutral. You know, as much as we might find it unpalatable, we kind of have to stay neutral on these kinds of things, these markets. Otherwise, we will hurt ourselves. Continuing on, wealthiest nations offer Indonesia $20 billion to wean it off coal. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi. Rich nations, led by the U.S. and Japan, have pledged to give Indonesia $20 billion to help the coal-dependent country shift to renewable energy and reach carbon neutrality by 2050. The deal put forward by the Just Energy Transition Partnership, which includes the U.S., Japan, Canada, and the U.K., and several European countries, including the EU and Norway, has been more than a year in the making. Launched at the sidelines of the G20 summit in Indonesia, which has been held in parallel to the COP27 UN Climate Summit in Egypt. The package includes $10 billion in public funding and a further $10 billion from the private sector, the White House said on Tuesday. And we have a quote from U.S. President Joe Biden, who said, Today, G20 leaders highlighted the importance of investing together and investing stronger to fill the enormous need for better infrastructure in low- and middle-income countries around the world, and we welcome all who share this vision to join our efforts. As part of the agreement, Indonesia committed to cap power sector emissions at 290 megatons of CO2 annually by 2030 and to generate about a third of its power from renewable sources by 2030. So it looks like Indonesia is buying in the coordinating minister of maritime and investment affairs, Luhut Binzar Panjaitan, said, quote, the deal shows we can create a more sustainable world for our grandchildren, our citizens and the future generation. John Kerry U.S. Climate Envoy called the accord, quote, groundbreaking. We've built a platform for cooperation that can truly transform Indonesia's power sector from coal to renewables and support 
significant economic growth. Now, remember that whole story about Indonesia and nickel? It's interesting how that hasn't come up in this story at all. And where does that fit into this whole puzzle? I mean, it seems that somewhere along the lines, these things are going to be related. Continuing on, story from the Northern Miners, Salazar and Adventus reached deal for $270 million Ecuador copper gold project. And it says here, this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, Adventist Mining and Salazar Resources are set to ink a final foreign investment agreement with Ecuador's government for their El Domo copper and gold project. The partners said that the country's investment institution approved last week a draft contract whose final version is expected to be signed in four months. The investment agreement includes a number of incentives for the miners, which are valid for about 10 years until March 2033. These include a 5% reduction in the income tax to 20% and a full exemption on capital outflow tax on all imports of capital goods and raw materials. And we have a quote from Adventist Mining President and CEO Christian Cargill Simard, quote, We're thrilled to have completed this significant approval milestone to further advance El Domo towards the start of construction in 2023, next year. So that is interesting. So Ecuador continues to, you know, get mining investment. Quick story that Cameco is officially restarting production at MacArthur River and Key Lake following a four-year shutdown. This is by Jackson Chen, and this is on northernminer.com. Just read a couple of paragraphs here. Cameco announced on Wednesday that the first pounds of uranium ore from the MacArthur River mine in Saskatchewan have now been milled and packaged at the Key Lake Mill, marking the achievement of initial production as these facilities transition back into normal operations. So remember, these were shut down by Tim Gitzel, the CEO of Cameco, in order to balance out the market. And I believe that all started out when Kazakhstan was flooding the market with uranium. So I think Kazakhstan has stopped doing that. And now I think Cameco is starting to open up their supply a little bit. And we have a quote from Cameco President and CEO Tim Gitzel, who said in a news release, quote, MacArthur River and Key Lake are among the best and most prolific uranium assets on the planet. And after building homes for these pounds in our long-term contract portfolio, we are delighted to have them back in production. Market conditions have continued to strengthen since we announced their planned restart, with growing geopolitical uncertainty adding to energy security concerns worldwide, and the ongoing global emphasis on decarbonization and electrification only gaining momentum. So MacArthur River Key Lake back online, and Encore Energy shares slide on buying another uranium plant in Texas. This is by Colin McClellan to the Northern Miner. Encore Energy says it is buying the past-producing Alta Mesa uranium project in Texas from Energy Fuels for $120 million in a deal boosting its capacity by more than 70%. The Alta Mesa in-situ recovery plant, fully licensed and constructed, adds capacity of 1.5 million pounds of uranium per year to Encore, the company said in a news release on Monday. So it's interesting. I guess the market thinks they overpaid if their stock fell. Your shares were sliding. $120 million doesn't seem like a crazy amount of money to me these days. And it's interesting, both Encore Energy and Energy Fuels dropped in price, so it may have just been the market was bad that day. Encore Energy fell 10% and Energy Fuels 2.6%. And just a few headlines to wrap up here. Germany considers national fund and scramble for raw materials. 
Germany is setting up a state-backed fund to help the country secure and diversify supplies of raw materials. The fund is a key part of a wider revamp of the nation's natural resource strategy, according to a government paper seen by Bloomberg. Germany is becoming increasingly concerned about supplies of critical materials like metals that underpin many technologies needed for the transition away from fossil fuels. Germany is particularly exposed as it needs to import 39 out of 46 strategic raw materials, according to an Ernst & Young study commissioned by the Economic Ministry. The goal of the Raw Materials Fund, which could also be set up with private support, would be to reduce supply risks through, quote, alternative financing structures, according to the EY study. You know what that sounds like to me? Quote, alternative financing structures? It sounds like public money. That would be my guess. It sounds like governments are getting in the business of natural resources. Again, we've been predicting this for years here, okay? We've been saying, like, basically that this unfortunately needs to happen, and it's not always the most efficient use of capital, but we can no longer just wait for the market to decide whether a nickel mine is going to be built or not. We can't afford that anymore. And just a couple more here. Australian mining magnet Forest calls for a ban on seabed mining. This is Reuters via mining.com. And Andrew Forrest from Fortescue Metals said his charitable foundation is in favor of a pause on seabed mining. So, yeah, I mean, look, we interviewed a CEO from Deep Green, and I believe they've changed their name. But what I understand of deep sea mining is it's simply picking up these metal nodules, as they're called, these, these ball-shaped pieces of metal off the seabed floor. It sounds like if you're going to be worried about that, like I think you need to have a pretty good reason. Like I'm far more concerned about the state of the sea from these nets, frankly. These nets that just, you know, so I would put it this way. I mean, maybe there is going to be damage from doing that. But I just think if your concern is the sea, I would be focusing that on nets, not on, you know, people picking up you know, these metal nodules off the bottom of the sea. I mean, I, I don't understand, but maybe these guys know more than I do about this, quite possibly. And a couple more headlines. Mosaic third quarter profit more than doubles. So Mosaic is making money and oil to zinc prices soar after China eases some COVID restrictions. And that is also Bloomberg via mining.com, November 11th. So now, my friends, those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year Treasury bond for context. And it is yielding 3.807%, which is 0.35% lower than last week. So a big drop in the U.S. 10-year bond. And I noticed the U.K. bond also dropped dramatically. is something like 3.37% yield, the 10-year there. So bonds have come down. The stock market is up. Taking a look at metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets who provide us with these prices each and every week. And on November 15th, gold is trading at $1,776.79 per ounce. That is $95 higher than last week. So big jump there. 
Silver is trading at $21.83 per ounce. That is 98 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,034.14 per ounce. That is $69 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,082.03 per ounce. That is $213 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.83 per pound. That is $0.42 higher. Aluminum is trading $0.08 higher at $1.09 per pound. Lead is trading $0.08 higher at $0.98 per pound. Nickel is trading at $11.80 per pound. That is $1.34 higher than last week. And tin is trading at $9.59 per pound. That is $1.38 higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.25 per pound. And zinc is $0.14 higher at $1.36 per pound. Zooming out, what we see is the dollar is starting to come down a little bit. And everything else, risk assets, commodities, are responding in kind. And there's probably not much more to it than that. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Andre St. Germain, CFO of Integra Resources, and also the 2018 recipient of the Young Mining Professionals Ira Thomas Award, who speaks candidly about her career pivot from investment banking into mining and why it was, quote, the scariest decision of her life. She holds an MBA in finance from York University and began in investment banking at Dundee Capital Markets, working with mining companies on M&A advisory and financing. In 2013, she joined Golden Queen Mining as CFO and then moved to Integra Gold as CFO in early 2017 and helped oversee its sale to El Dorado Gold that same year for $590 million. She is also a director of Osisco Metals and an advisor at Wailu Metals, which took over Ontario-focused Norant Resources. Earlier this year, after winning a bidding war with BHP, she sat down in September with Anthony Vaccaro, president of the Northern Mining Group, to discuss her career thus far. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Join me in welcoming Andre St. Germain. Well, listen, the board appointments are pretty impressive. And why don't we start with that? And Wailu has been such a topical one. Of course, Wailu duking it out with BHP for the Ring of Fire. Andrew Forrest winning the day on that one. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? I mean, how have you enjoyed this phase of your career? What are some of the unique challenges that come with being a board member for some of these important companies? Personally, I've been on boards for the past about five years, five or six years. It's been a great, great experience. I love being on boards because you are exposed to other companies, other management team. You also get all the diversity in terms of location where the project is. And in the case of, of Wilu, for example, I'm on the, the special uh, sorry, the advisory committee. You have access to different metals, in this case, uh, nickel. So it's been great because you, you always learn from, from your experience with other, other companies and it makes, I think, me a better CFO for Integra, but at the same time, because I'm a working executive, it makes me a good director as well because you're connected in the industry, you know what's, you know what's happening, you're in the loop and you can bring your own experience, you know, more experience on, on the table. Um, definitely comes with, with challenges because every company has challenges. I think it's the, the name of the game when you're in, uh, 
when you're in mining. And I mean, it's definitely kind of a good time commitment. But uh, no, very excited. And uh, uh, Ascot, that's going to be a, you know, the next few years will be pretty busy with the construction of the mine, really with the development of Eagle's Nest project, and, and Cisco as well with the development of Windfall. So there's definitely some exciting years. What about that specific challenge appealed to you that you would, with already full schedule, say, okay, I'm taking this on? I think the team, it's a very uh, young, dynamic team. And I think, you know, their vision in terms of, they're really focused on green metals. I think that's where, you know, that's a big push to, to promote the industry and how mining is good. It really relates to the kind of the, the green energy, if you want. So it, you know, it's going to be a good mine. It's going to be challenging, too. I always like to go back to the beginning, right? I mean, we're all here about knowledge share and how you've risen through the ranks to become such a prominent member of our mining community. So we go back to the investment banking. Why don't we start with that? Why investment banking? You were telling me earlier that you actually came from Quebec out to BC. What made you go all the way back to Toronto to do investment banking? And why did you specialize in mining? Well, I wanted to get into capital markets. I didn't know anything about investment banking back then. So I, I went to Toronto, did my MBA. Beginning of the MBA, there's a bunch of bankers that, that came at school. And I think that's why outreach you know, to promote the industry is so critical to go and meet kids in high school or university, because that's how I got to know about, oh, what investment banking is. I think I kind of just knew right away that's so what I had to nothing do. Nothing in your family? No uncles, no. relatives oh, in the no. mining industry or anything like that? I was the black sheep of the family. Amazing. <laughs> when I got into mining, my dad was like, oh, no. But I kind of convinced him pretty quickly that mining can actually do, do good things for community and, and that it has changed a lot over the years. Uh, my uncle is in the mining, sorry, in the mining space, geologist in Val d'Or. So okay. maybe that's why as, when I started investment banking, got a bit of that okay. inclined towards uh, mining. But yeah, I think it was just more following my guts. And so you start at Dundee. Mm -hmm. Of course, the late Ned Goodman, yeah. another Hall of Fame member. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful individual. Do you have any experiences with Ned that you could share? Did you get to interact with Ned at all while you were there? Over the years, I would, you know, bump into Ned, you know the hallways and stuff. He was on the top floor. I was at the bottom floor. So a few times I got to venture where the uh, very important people were. Uh, you know, bumping into him and always very kind of kind and, and uh, very, very genuine. Um, but I think what I remember the most is my last day at, at Dundee. I was in Vancouver at the time, flew back to Toronto and just for the day. And, and Ned reached out to me. He's like, hey, come in, you know, see me in my office. And I was like, wow. Ned knows who I am. <laughs> so I went to see him in his office. I thought it would just be kind of a quick handshake, you know, good luck. But now I actually, I think if I recall, he had a couch in his office. And he come over here and we both sat on, on the couch. And I probably spent 20 minutes, half an hour in his office. And yeah, I was just sharing. I mean, he was passionate about the mining industry. And he was really happy for me to do the switch to join Golden Queen. So he shared with me some of his, you know, pearls of advice about the industry and his views on the industry. And um, so I was very, very touched. Sometimes you don't need a lot. For him, it was just half an hour of his time. But for me, that made a big, big impression for sure on me. And yeah. that's the last time I think I saw him as well. That would have been 10 years ago. A beautiful memory to have of him. He was actually yeah. the patron of uh, where I did my MBA at John Wilson School of Business. So he would come into for us, and we were like 13 MBA students, and like take that time. It wasn't one-on-one. -on -one. But he still took that time, and I always had that patience and that calm way of speaking. It can just really kind of look you in the eye and make you feel like, 
you know, you mattered, right? Yes. So you go from there, you're building up all this great experience at mm -hmm. Dundee, and now it's off to Golden Queen. I mean, and there's two transitions here. There's one from the investment banking world to now you're with an issuer that's trying to get in production. Talk to us about the theme of transition at that time in your life. What was that transition like coming out of the investment banking world? What were some of the key challenges or problems that you had to solve and deal with? Why don't we start with that one? I'll start by saying it was probably the scariest decision I took in my life. You're in a comfortable zone. I loved investment banking. I never thought I would change or leave investment banking. This opportunity was, was brought up to me. I almost said no. Because <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Why would you say uh, that? Like, it felt like too much at the time? Well, no, and, and I think, and sorry, I don't want to generalize here, but often women, we, we think about our credentials more than our potential. And I was like, well, I'm not a CA. I can't, you know, can't be a CFO. I didn't say no right away. I said, let me think about it. But in my head, I was like, no way. I'm not. <laughs> I was like, I can't. But I, when I called my, my boss the next day, he was like, Andre, you're stupid if you say no. Just do it. I was like, yeah, okay, you got a point. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll do it. So it was a definitely kind of a big, big switch. Came with challenges. I guess the first one, like I said, I guess my own insecurities. And I think it's it's normal to have insecurities, but they have to be short lived. How do you overcome those? <laughs> Working hard. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big believer in, in paying your dues. I think I kept the same banking hours throughout my years at Golden Queen. I don't think I had a weekend off. But, you know, just joking about it, definitely had, had insecurities about, because I was young, I was 33, first time in the business. And then you think of like, what will people will think? And just not the street, but also employees, right? Like I'm a 33 year old telling someone twice my age, kind of what to do. But what really helped is that I had the support, like throughout my career, I had a lot of great champions that supported me. So in this case, Golden Queen, big support from the boards, uh, big support from the CEO. So that kind of gives you a bit of that confidence as well. And I think really just to kind of putting the hours and, you know, overcoming those those insecurities. Uh, other challenge as well as, you know, on CFO and Golden Queen, the tight, it was a pretty lean team. So you wear a lot of hats. It's not just, you know, accounting and financial reporting and budgeting. And you had to work on the project financing. You have... HR, IT, compliance, like everything kind of falls under you. And I think the one thing that helps is that you need to be humble and, and understand that you can't do everything. You cannot be an expert at everything. And that applies as well, you know, when you're a director on a board, you can't be an expert at everything. You're not expected to. You know, I had my specific skill sets. And for the skills that I needed help with, then that's where the team comes in place. So you have your internal team that works with you. And then you have all your external team, the bankers, the auditors, and you can go and leverage how, and other CFOs were fantastic as well. We have such a great industry where we, we share together and help each other. So really it's about leveraging those resources to, to help you out. It's a theme that comes up a lot in this industry, but I hadn't heard in this particular context, you know, that the industry is small and there is that support. It, even at that CFO level, though, you found that you found that network that was there to support you. That's oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's still there very, very much. We reach out to each other on a regular basis and everyone's there to help. Like, it's really a beautiful thing about the industry. When was it time to leave? So Golden Queen gets into production and then talked about the Integra opportunity, how that came about, and why that was appealing. Well, uh, George and, and uh, Steve approached me. Basically, Integra was at the stage. This is George Salamis. Yeah, George Salamis. The founders yes. of Integra. The chairman yeah. and, and CEO. And Integra Gold was at the stage where the project was ready to be financed and built. And the project was in Quebec. So being French-Canadian, it was kind of the perfect 
perfect mix. I like to joke around though, they hired me more as a bait. So Eldorado, like <laughs> to say, we just hired a CFO who's gonna finance it. So if you don't take us over, we're, we're doing it, we're doing it ourselves, right? So, uh, but no, so they brought me in, probably didn't even have a day off in between. I went from one office to the other. And uh, yeah, we're probably a kind of a week away from signing a term sheet on the project financing when the bid from Eldorado came in. So their tactic worked very well. Yeah, I know. They, they never, like, they never uh, confirmed my assumptions. Right. So. <laughs> now, it did make it a very short tenure, though, because, I mean, yeah, from the time that you joined months. to the time that, yeah, it was, it was a few months. Was it enough time? Is there things that you took from that experience, though, or was it so crazy and rushed that it wasn't? Oh, there's a lot that I took, for sure. I mean, the project, being involved with another project financing, uh, for sure, was quite time-consuming, but got some really good experience uh, out of it, knowing all the key players and, and kind of the, the madness behind it. But the I would say that to be involved with an M&A from that perspective, from the company side, was really good. Because I've done a lot on the, the mining side as an investment banker. Right? A lot of the work is before the announcement, you know, from the idea to negotiation to the fairness opinion. and But once it's announced, you know, you don't have as much work to do. But from the, the company perspective, it's so much deeper, right? And a lot of it falls on the CEO as well, but it's like you need to think of communication to the employees, communication to your stakeholders, the communities, your vendors. And uh, as the CFO, like, I didn't stop until the transaction actually closed, and then a few days after that, there was still some paperwork and some legal stuff to do, but it's quite intensive. For the company acquiring, though, that's even more work because then you have to integrate a company, a culture, a different culture in your employees. So that's a that's a had the easier the easier side of, of the deal. But, yeah, it's it's better to be the acquired in that situation than dealing with all the headaches of merging all that in. No question. Talk to us about Integra 2.0. Mm -hmm. I mean, was that something that George and Steve were already kind of dreaming up during the first incarnation of Integra? How did that all come apart? Were you, did you know that this is where you were definitely going to be going or how did that happen? I love the team. Like even if I was just with Integra Gold for like, I don't know, three months, four months, we had a lot of fun. It was a fantastic team and I knew I would want to stay with them. The plan though was to take the summer off and then just get started later on, but that didn't happen. The transaction closed and, and a week later, George called me and was like, hey, <laughs> I, yeah, think we're into, I think we're into something new and uh, it's like, I hope you didn't plan too much for the summer. Was there any oh, hesitation yeah. on your part or was it an immediate no, yes? No, there was no, no okay, You knew, this, these were oh, the right yeah, people yeah. and the right opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Talk to us about some of the best advice you've received over your career. Advice I got, God, there's so many. I think, well, one of the first one was in banking is uh, not to invest my bonuses in mining stocks. I didn't really, I should have listened to that one. <laughs> or, you know, enjoy the highs because it's, you know, lows are quite brutal. And this is, this is true. Um, but I think professionally the best advice I, I got was actually just a, a book that I read uh, from Sheryl Sandberg, uh, Lean In. And it's where she referred to kind of, you know, that in the past it was kind of the, you know, you have to think of climbing the corporate ladder right, if you wanted to make it to the top. But now it's more, you have to see the workplace more like a jungle gym, where you'll do lateral moves, and you know, that's where you can actually, and if you look back at my career, that's really what happened, going from banking to CFO to, and I stopped there, but, <laughs> but you know, it's by making lateral moves, 
that you can make your way, depending where you want to end up. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for that. Given that the industry has been grappling with diversity in its history, how much progress has been made in the last five years? Is the pace of change fast enough for you? What do you think is happening on that front and what more can be done or needs to be done or doesn't need to be done? I think I'm very, very impressed by the industry, uh, genuinely, uh, and how things have changed, especially the past like five years. I mean, I remember in my banking days, I don't think I met too many women CEO, a few CFOs maybe. Uh, I've been to countless board meetings uh, as a banker and yeah, I don't really recall seeing too many women. I would say the past five years have been a huge, huge shift. Pretty much all the boards I'm involved with, it's at least two women two women on the board. So a lot of companies are passing, you know, moving past the, the just one woman on, on the board. And you see more and more women at this level, at the C-suite. So not just CFO, but CEOs as well, which is great. But these change take time. Like it's not something that happens tomorrow. Like you need to, you know, the, you need to have good retention plans, I think in place and training and understanding that women need a different type of mentorship sometimes than, than guys. So maybe having programs that are a little bit more tailored, tailored for women. Yeah, that's really yeah. insightful. And that's the nuance there. I mean, Maureen Jensen at the Mining Hall of Fame in her acceptance speech, of course, she's a glass ceiling smasher extraordinaire, you know, made that point that it's not just about having someone on the board because they're a woman, mm -hmm. right? It's about having the right people on the board because they have those skills, they have that training, and then we get the benefit of that diversity of opinion mm -hmm. that our industry needs so much. So I think that point about training, it also ties in with today's conversation very well. Let's end on a bit of a personal note about you yeah. as a person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're a noted dog lover. Yeah. First of all, what, what is the preferred dog breed that can keep up to an athlete that trains at your level? <laughs> well, our dogs, we have a Rhodesian Ridgeback and a Springer. Okay. So very, very active. Do both of them keep up with you equally? Yeah, yeah, they do, actually. The Ridgeback is definitely faster, but I think the um, Springer has more endurance. So they can, we still have to wait for them once in a while, but, uh, you know, we take them mountain biking and, and running and other good. And share with the audience what your latest yes. mountain biking adventure is going to be in the coming Oh, what God. is it, in coming weeks? <laughs> Next week. Next week. Yeah, it's a, um, an endurance race. So a six-day, multi-day. It's the BC bike race, which will be in the, actually, the one is in Kelowna. And, uh, yes, it's in a week from now. It's six days, lots of climbing. It's going to be painful. 10,000 meters. Andre's being very <laughs> modest here. She's climbing her bike, mountain bike, 10,000 meters up over six days, which is. So, so I'm done with the physical prep. This week is more the mental prep. And it's going to be painful, so I'm, I'm prepared for this. I always seek those kind of things anyway. I think I, I like feeling the pain. <laughs> Do you find any correlation between extreme physical exertion like that and your success in the corporate world? Oh, yes, big time. I think all my life I've been into kind of extreme sports. Um, and now I, you know, I picked up mountaineering two years ago, and I'm a f scared of heights. Like I constantly do things that challenge me and scare me, but the feeling, I mean, cause then you, you kind of learn how to deal with adversity and same thing with all those endurance race. Like you feel the physical pain, the mental pain, you're in your dark place <laughs> and then you mentally you have to get out of your dark place and, and keep going. I think in terms of resilience, I built my resilience through sports. I built my uh, mental fortitude through sports as well. And these are critical, I think critical behaviors or critical skills when you're 
an executive or on boards because things are not always rosy. You got challenges, you got difficult decisions to make, so you can't just hide and not do it. You have to, to face it and adapt and move on. And that really so. crystallizes some of the attributes that were kind of being pointed to as we went through your career, mm -hmm. right? Especially I was thinking back to when you first switched from Dundee over to Golden Queen and that kind of that fear and anxiety and being able to come through that. So mm -hmm. that's yeah. wonderful. Andre, thank you so much for spending the time and having such a good share with us today. Thank you so much. there we have it, another episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you to Andre St. Germain for a very interesting interview at the Mining Legends Speaker Series and also to Anthony Vaccaro, president of the Northern Miner Group. And thank you to you, dear listener, for joining us once again on the program. The Canadian Mining Symposium is in two weeks. Just go to events.northernminer.com for more details. And if you want to help out the podcast, just leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, Take care.